Hey everybody, welcome to episode 13 of the Go Get Outside podcast. This is your host, Jason Milligan. On today's show, Pamela Zulalian, her friend who will also be appearing on the podcast later on, recommended that she contact me to be on the show. And she sent me this email talking about how she's a backpacker and she teaches these wilderness courses and all these things. At no point did she mention that she was a professional street loser and award-winning champion street loser. I found that to be very amusing that she contacted me to say, hey, you should have me on the show. I do these things and never mentioned that she's traveled the world, been all over television, competing and winning street losing events. Anyway, she and I got together. We met for the first time at the Eaton Nature Center in Pasadena one afternoon and recorded this really fun interview. She is indeed the first person I've ever met who has ever done street luge at all. So I think everybody's going to dig this show because I imagine most of you probably don't know any street losers either. Let's get to the interview. Zulalian, and I am a full-fledged adventurer, and I think that would best describe me. Life is meant to be explored, and I certainly go down that road to be an explorer and an adventurer and never have a dull moment, I think, even going to the market. (laughs) The very exciting Whole Foods market, or the very exciting Trader Joe's, or Vons. Can we name any other markets, just in case somebody wants to sponsor the show? Oh, (laughs) Ralph's. Oh, Sprouts. Fresh and Easy. Maybe Fresh fresh and and Easy easy. would like, they're not doing so well, so maybe they would like to invest in some podcast. What activities do you regularly participate in right now? Gosh, that's a really great question because it's Do you such even a, know? No, I, it's it's so broad because I think everything is sort of seasonal in a way. Like I'm always doing something. So when the surf is good, I'm surfing. When the winter snow is good, I'm snowboarding. I'm always outdoors. So, you know, I plan backpacking trips regularly. You know, I've just started doing a lot of canyoneering. I hike daily with my dogs. I skateboard. I, you know, I snowboard. I surf. I ride mountain bike so I I do so much so when you say what do I do regularly it's sort of everything everything in a way it goes within seasons you know there are definitely seasonal are there any that you refuse to do um, not that I've discovered yet. I mean, I have my skydiving license. I have AFS certified. I've, you know, I've done a lot of different things. So <laughs> let's go way back in time. Okay. How did you start doing these things? Do you remember? Um, I was really fortunate that I had two parents that had this little kid that had so much energy, and they didn't want to cap that. Oh, uh, you did? They did like she won't go to sleep at night. Yeah. So they realized that in order for me to be balanced and and like kind of my energy level, they just let me do everything. So they were like, "You want to go do this? You can do this. You want to go do that? You can go do that." I have an older brother who's a year older than me, so we're very close in age. So I was such a tomboy that I hung out with he and his friends. So I think that. Really really sort of, you know, they were always climbing trees and doing these things and building and doing all the stuff that, you know, I was always there with him because we were, you know, we were like best buddies. So I, I, I just think there was never a limitation or a cap on what I could do. I was just like, well, they're doing that. Why can't I do that? Or I would see something and I'd want to try it and I'd figure out how to do that. When I was little, I just didn't realize that maybe there was something I couldn't do. 
Did you ever run into those adults who would say things like, oh, you shouldn't, you're the girl, you shouldn't go do those things, or were you lucky enough to be able to avoid that in your youth? No, that's a great question. I regularly ran into adults that were like, oh, you're the girl and you shouldn't do that. And there was a time, because I was such a tomboy and my mom cut my hair really short because I wouldn't let her comb it and brush it, and I have really thick hair, that my brother and I looked like little twin boys. So there was a time when I was very young where people just thought we were two little twin boys doing all of these things. And it wasn't until I got older and he grew taller and then you know we clearly weren't twin boys anymore and you know that then I started getting that like but you're a girl and you shouldn't be doing these things and you know and it was always very confusing to me because I didn't understand that I didn't understand that mentality it didn't your parents weren't like that um you know it's very interesting my mom was very artistic and she really you know definitely allowed me my dad worked really hard so my influence was a lot on my mom artistically and creatively and things like that my dad actually did have a very old-fashioned mentality of like oh no no that's what boys do but by this point I was just totally confused by that because I'm like well I don't get this because that's what I'm doing and you know so I think he had a hard time adjusting to the fact that you know his little girl was not like wearing pink little dresses and little bows in her hair but you know had shorts on and scabs on her knees and was always kind of dirty you know climbing and doing things outside and so it was definitely when I was little I don't think he understood it but he accepted it because he could see that it was something that I truly enjoyed and it was really a part of what I was and who I was. There's kind of a big thing right now with getting women outdoors. I think some people think it's a new thing and I don't think it's a new thing. I think people are realizing they always wanted to be out there. Just people were stopping them. I have to agree with that. Because I've been doing all this stuff for so long, the industry has changed. Because when I was much younger, you know, 15, 20 years ago, I couldn't go into an REI and I couldn't buy clothes for me that fit me. I had to buy boys' clothes for the outdoor activities that I did. And now the the industry has really embraced and realized there's this whole market out there and it has been underutilized. And they're really, really, you know, tapping into that and just allowing for women to go out there and girls to go out there and do all of these things. Because it doesn't make sense that we don't. Like it really, it doesn't. I think anybody can do anything. It doesn't matter your gender or your age or your weight or any of that. I think, you know, if it's something you want to do, figure it out and do it. This is going to sound like a funny question. So your helmet and harnesses, what color are they? Let's see. My climbing harnesses would be baby blue. My climbing helmet is actually turquoise. My backpacks are turquoise. I do wear a lot of pink. My skateboarding stuff, it actually, all my my helmets, my pads, they're either black or pink. Um, No purple. No purple, oddly. The reason I ask this question is I notice most women that I know, their gear is either like purple or baby blue, like you had mm-hmm. said. And it's not because they necessarily wanted those colors. Uh-huh. It's because those are the only colors in women's <laughs> that come that the women's gear is made in. That's actually true, too. So I think it went from being from one extreme to the other. But I think if you really look, I mean, there's so many outdoor markets, you know, outdoor companies out there. And they're really, really good with giving a more diverse palette of, you know, allowing for muted tones within those bright colors as well. So I think it, you know, you just have to look. You, you know, just don't buy the first thing you see like really shop (laughs) so what did you do recently what did I do recently uh this morning I actually took my dogs up to Henninger so that was my most recent thing that I did this morning this weekend I actually have a trip going over Duck Pass to Purple Lake so it's going to be a nice little quick little you know three-day backpacking trip for fourth of July I've got a bunch of really big 
um, third class scramble climb peak bag summits for the next few weekends. I'm doing like a bunch of sections of the Pacific Crest Trail. So I've been doing, you know, anywhere from 20 to 40 miles in, you know, one or two days, just depending on what our time frame is. Let's see, snowboarding was great, so I had a good season there. Surfing, I try to get in the water as much as possible, but sometimes I just don't get in as often as I'd like. The temperatures are warm enough now that it shouldn't be a problem. Our waters are usually pretty cold, but yeah, they're warm. They're it's warmer. so hot outside, though, Yeah, you'll be yeah. thankful You're for like, the 50-degree water. It's the water 68. That's nice. <laughs> so backpacking is something you do pretty frequently these days, It right? is something I've been doing really frequently. After doing the John Muir Trail, I did a 30-day solo hike along the John Muir Trail, and I was already hooked into backpacking anyway, but I think... That, that wasn't your introduction, right? That was not my introduction. That would be a hell of an introduction. Yeah, that was actually but that was my introduction to going solo like I'd never really gone solo before and then I had done a 30-day solo hike along the John Muir Trail and for those of you who don't know about the John Muir Trail it it's two, 211 miles but there's it really I ended up hiking about 272 miles because I went you know I did like Mount Whitney in there but it goes from Yosemite all the way to Mount Whitney and then you you know you have to exit out the trail and there are, you know passes and other things like that. It starts in Tuolumne Meadow right? Yeah and actually it starts in Happy Isle in oh, okay. Yosemite and it goes through some of the most difficult mountain ranges you literally every day are summiting a peak that's no less than 10,000 feet but the average is about 11,500 feet. Your average elevation gain is usually about 4,000 feet per day. So you're going up a peak, down a peak, up a peak, down a peak, almost daily. And it's really, really hard. I'd say about one third of the people that succeed who actually want to do this hike because it's really, really challenging. But it was really, really just life-changing. And I know that sounds like so cliche. Like I went on this hike in the woods and it was life-changing and that's what you always hear. But there's something to be said about that because you're the only one out there. You have to rely on you. There's no one else to turn to. You know, your own fears you have to tap into. You're, you know what I mean? Like, so you literally are, are there for yourself. There's no one else there for you. You better learn to like yourself if you don't already because you're the only one you can talk to. Exactly. And it was interesting because I chose to go without any technology technology so I didn't bring any music with me the things I did bring were a camera because I wanted to document it then I had like a GPS tracker so my friends could track me and in case of an emergency I was able to you know call for help like an SOS kind of thing but other than that I had you know I just brought a journal and I'm, I'm an artist so I sketch and I draw a lot there's so much to see and so much to do I was never bored like I mean it was just just visually beautiful and just such a powerful experience and was that the longest backpacking trip you had done at that time that was the longest backpacking trip I'd done at that time. Um, I am planning on doing through hiking the Pacific Crest Trail, which is 2,650 plus miles and it goes from Mexico to Canada. So I'm planning on doing that one as well. Um, I've been section hiking a bunch of it. I was originally going to do the whole thing at once, but I think what I'll end up doing is section hiking all of Southern California and then just starting just below Forester Pass and then doing that part all the way through Washington and Oregon and getting to Canada and just sort of doing it that way. So only, you know, I'll, I'll end up doing about 2,000 miles continuously versus, you know, the whole thing. How long do you think that's going to take you? Because um, you're not going to be able to do it in one year if you do it that way. Uh, well... This year I want to do, I want to section hike all of Southern California, and I've actually been pretty close to accomplishing that because I go out so much. Um, next year I was thinking of doing the other portion of it, and that would probably take me about three and a half months. Do you think you'll go back and do it in one go someday? 
Uh, or you don't know yet? I don't know yet. You know, I mean, likely I think I would if I had the time, but there's so many other trails to hike. I mean, there's the Great Divide Trail, there's the Appalachian Trail, there's trails in Europe that are equally as long and beautiful. So, you know, I might circle back at some point, but I'm kind of one of those like, hey, let's go do this and let's go do that. And, you know, the list is continuously growing. Are you saying you're mercurial? Yes, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) So the thing with backpacking is that it can be amazing, it can be a lot of fun, and it can be torture. So what do you say to people who who would say, like, why do you do that? It's got to be so uncomfortable. It's got to be so miserable. I'm going to say that when you push yourself that hard and there's no denying that everything you said isn't true because it absolutely (laughs) is you know there are times where you're super fatigued your feet hurt your back is tired you're completely exhausted but yet you still have a long way to go to make that that point of destination that you want to get to but everything about it there's always something on the trail that reminds you why you're there when you're struggling whether it's just the most epic view that you've ever seen or sounds that you don't hear or wildly life that you never thought you'd encounter or you know maybe just another hiker on the trail that has more love for it than you do and they remind you why you're out there so I just say I think everything that is really hard to do is what's worth doing because you get so much more out of it when you know that you've pushed yourself to the limits with something easy things are easy that's why people do the easy stuff yeah I think sometimes people forget that you don't have to take it easy in your free time difficult things can be rewarding in a way that's different than just straight fun I agree everything I've done in life has been challenging and that's made me be able to look back and just feel really grateful that I experienced all of those things that I never took the easy path to anything I did I don't know why that is. <laughs> so I, I don't know, but um, maybe just, you're like me. You, you naturally choose the most difficult path through the woods. Often I'll go hiking with people, and then I'll look over and I'm like, oh, why am I scrambling over all this junk and pushing through all this poison oak? Very clearly, I could have just walked straight down this path right here. Because usually there's something more beautiful taking leading you that way, right? <laughs> That's very nice of you to say. I think I'm just a moron. <laughs> Well, maybe we're all a little bit moronic then. I don't know. <laughs> so do you remember what your very first backpacking trip was? That's a great question. Wow, I have to go back like about 20 years. It wasn't a disaster then. No, you know, I'm one of these people, which is I think the reason why I keep doing more and more is I do a lot of reading. I do a lot of research and I'm not naive and stupid when I go to do something. I don't just decide, hey, tomorrow I'm going to go do this and do it completely ill-prepared. I read. I find out what could go wrong. I prepare myself for a lot of different things. So... Hopefully in the worst case scenario, I'm the best prepared I can be, even though it might be my first experience. So, so that has always been a benefit to me. You know, I don't, I ask a lot of questions and it's really easy to get information now with the, with the interweb and, It's pretty easy to get information. Yeah. So there's, if you can't find the information, you need to learn how to use Google better. Exactly. Exactly. So there's, there's really no reason that you can't be knowledgeable doing something. I mean, obviously certain things like canyoneering or something that it very easily, your life could be seriously at risk, you know, things like that. You need to know people and you need to learn certain skills beforehand and there's training in all of those things these days. Oh my God, there's search, classes there's for probably everything. Something near you. Yeah, just Google. I want to learn how to do this, and I guarantee you, a whole list of outdoor retailers and private instructors will have the answer for you. <laughs> all right, so be prepared so that you can forget your first backpacking experience, like Pamela. I know. I actually feel really badly. <laughs> I'm gonna have to go through my journals and be like, "What was my first backpacking trip?" Do you remember how old you were by chance? Um, I was a teenager. 
And for the oh, lo- so you had like a yeah, like a big external frame, yeah, heavy total backpack. Crazy external you should remember frame. this. You know, wearing cotton denim, but I don't remember if it was like a Yosemite trip or, you know, if we were Sequoia Kings Canyon. Like, you know what I mean? I don't remember like the specific specifics. I definitely have to go through photo albums. And did you grow up in California? I grew up in California, but I have traveled all over the world, and I've lived a lot of different places. But um, California is amazing. So you know, here I am back in California. Yeah, I feel like we have every climate available to us within a short drive. Yeah we do and I think that's why I don't leave for very long like I'll leave for a couple years and then come back and you know love it and remember why I'm here and all right so we haven't mentioned this yet and I think this is a thing that should be pretty interesting you not only were a street luge athlete you were a champion correct yes so explain to people what street luge is for those of you who do not know what street luge is um think of like uh ice luging in the olympic winter sport of ice luging where you're on your back and you're kind of sliding on a pre-designated track it's very similar to that but rather than the pre-designated track and we're not on ice we're on open roads usually mountain roads you know think of a lot of turns a lot of chicanes things like that and then we use you know really large modified um um, urethane wheels that can handle the high speeds and really, you know, be able to take the turns really, really well. So that, I guess, would be the best way to describe street luging. Kind of, it looks like you're lying on a really big skateboard, shooting down really steep streets. Yes, very, very vaguely. I'm going to say a skateboard's sort of a wooden deck, and these are, you know, really highly designed speed machines, I guess, to, to put it. But yes, I think just that would be a good description. <laughs> so street luge isn't really a sport that's available at your local YMCA or most places. How in the hell did you get into that? I got into street luge because a friend of mine was actually luging. And this was back in 1985, or excuse me, 1995. He was involved in it very heavily. I'd run into him again and he was telling me about street luge. And I had actually seen it on the Summer X Games that summer, like a few months earlier. And I was really, really intrigued by it because I happened to be one of these people, you know, like downhill mountain biking and, you know, going really fast on my snowboard. Like I like speed. I like to go fast. It was something I wanted to try. And I just thought how odd the universe is that here I run into a friend I hadn't seen in a handful of years that they're telling me about the sport that I had seen a few months earlier. And I really, really wanted to get into it and try it. But I, how do you do that? Yeah. You don't tend to run into street luge people all over the place. No. And you know, it is a very precarious sport to practice because you're practicing on open roads there's not you know so you have to be very careful we would go and train you know we'd get up at the crack of dawn we'd sweep the roads we'd have you know people at either end of the roads closing the roads off for us so we never had to worry about oncoming traffic but a lot of people don't do that like you really need you know a lot of coordination you need to find an area that's really safe that's sort of off the beaten path but that's also you know allows you to really push yourself and challenge your limits so what kind of speeds do you get up to when you're doing that my my fastest speed that I was clocked was like 81.62, I believe, but that's unrealistic for competition speeds because everything can go wrong really quickly and, you know, you don't want that to happen. Competition speeds usually are somewhere in the, like, 55 to 70 at most range, so they're they're in those ranges. Which is very fast for a body lying on a flat surface yeah, to and, travel. Yeah, and it's head-to-head racing, so it's not it's not like the, you know, sister sport in the Olympics that 
that you're timed like we're head-to-head racing so there's up to six people on the road at once depending if it's a two-man format a four-man format or a six-man format so that's where it gets really dicey at those speeds what kind of safety gear do you wear when you're doing that um i wear full leathers i wear a back brace just to support my back in case anything happens i'm full helmet gloves shoes ankle protection you know anything on my knees because you want to make sure that if you do come off your board that you're completely protected that you can slide along the concrete or the pavement and you know be able to stop yourself and things like that and impacts you know you do the best you can with an impact now it's one of those sports where i'm sure once you get good at it it's not as big a deal but at the beginning when you suck you must just crash fly off the board all the time you do and it's because you're learning and i you know i think think of anything you're learning to do whether it was when you first learned to ride, ride a bike as a kid you know you start pedaling a couple times you're still getting to that point where you, when you get your balance it's like this magical thing and it feels simple but when you don't know what that feeling feels like and it gets easy you tend to get a little nervous and want to you know like lean out of it so it's sort of like that like you know you're always pushing your limits you're still learning you know how to adjust your your trucks and your wheels on your board you know what it feels like what's what feels right what does what what scrubbing what sliding scrubbing hooking up and going is like versus not like you know there's a point where sometimes you will slide into a turn hook up again and go but when you don't know that your board is capable of doing that or your gear is capable of doing that you start to slide and you panic so of course you're going to bail so it's things like that it's just sort of knowing how the board's going to react on different different um, textures of pavement different heat you have different wheels that you'd put on for you know whether it's center set wheels offset wheels um you know different things like that also when when you ride a couple inches from somebody there's a whole trust factor in that too like you just have to believe like they're not going to screw up and then you know so you you just really have to kind of know the people that you're riding with really well and know their style of riding because I was very light and very little um, I would always take really tight inside turns and I would drift out where the bigger guys would do the opposite they would start out and you know then they would drift further out so I knew that I couldn't be on the outside of a turn because I would get drifted into because we had an opposite style of riding so there's just things like that that you learn about yourself learn where you want to be where you don't want to be in a competition setting I would really spend a lot of time watching my competitors so I knew the lines that they were taking and where I wouldn't where I shouldn't be with them on the road Were you part of some sort of training program that helped you ramp up from less steep, slower, beginner terrain to the harder terrain? Or did you just kind of get thrown in and figure out how to swim? I'm going to say yes to both of those. Um, You always are kind of thrown in and learn how to swim. You're just in the back of the pack and you slow down more and you sit up more and you watch more. I was very fortunate that one of the leading riders at the time saw my potential and he really took me under his wing, you know, built me an incredible board and really taught me a lot. And we went and rode as a team all of the time together. So that allowed my skill set to increase really, really rapidly. And then being the type of person that always asks questions and needs to know everything, I just asked every question possible. And I really learned a lot. It's funny because when I was first um, competing, a lot of the guys thought it was really entertaining. Oh, I'll answer all these questions. But then when they realized I was getting really good and really a competitive force, they stopped answering. You were becoming real competition for them? Yeah, then they they wouldn't answer my questions anymore because they were like, I can't tell you this information. Like they just thought, oh, this is cute. 
Oh, it's cute. It's a girl it's that's a girl. doing it. She's oh, it's doing adorable. She'll sure, do it for I'll a week. And You're then maybe... asking me a question, and I'll give you that answer. And then after a while, there was no, it didn't stop happening. So you mentioned a board being made for you. So do your boards need to be specially built to your frame size and your body? Yes. Um, I'm really, really tiny. I'm 5'2". Most of my competitors are easily 6 to 8 inches taller than me, if not a foot taller than me, and they're much bigger. So I actually had to have all my boards custom made. There are boards you can get out there through certain manufacturers that, you know, they kind of come in like a small, medium, and large. And I was always like the extra small petite board that they would have to have made for me because I was so little and so light compared to my other competitors. So how long did you do it? How long Um, were you competing? I competed for about eight years on a professional level. I rode for longer than that. You know, I was traveling all over the world. I was doing X games, gravity games, PlayStation Extreme games. Were you going on MTV Sports with Dan Cortez? Yeah, I was definitely doing MTV Sports. I mean, I was doing everything. Like, literally, you could go to um, my YouTube page and you can see a lot of the different media stuff that I've done. So I did, I mean, I did so much. I did. Yeah, it was a blast, actually. So why don't you do it anymore? I think it's good that when you're at the top of the game and you recognize that it's time to retire, you know, because I realized that in order to be continuously successful at something that's so adrenaline driven that you have to be willing to always, always put yourself at the most extent of that risk. And I realized that I just, my, my headspace was changing a little bit where I wasn't willing to do that anymore. And I just thought, you know what, I'm at the top of my game and I'm going to just step back now. So I actually stopped competing um, when I was at my best rather than being that, oh, she was good once. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Did you ever feel like you got so accustomed doing it that it ceased to be exciting or that maybe you even took for granted what you were doing at a given moment and kind of lost the sense of, of the danger that you could potentially be in? No, not at all. Um, not at all. I think because you, you know, every time we would travel, we would literally be going out there to these mountain roads all over the world that were just epic, epic places. So there were so many variables and so many things you needed to learn. And, you know, you would get on a course for the first time and it was new. You had to learn everything again, you know, how fast do I want to take these turns and, you know, where do I want to be? And, you know, how tight is this turn at what speeds? And it was always exciting because you're always constantly having to figure things out. So it was never, ever like that. Even if it was a place that we regularly had events, you know, that we had, you know, a series of races internationally that we would always train on the same hill but if it was raining it would change if it was really hot the pavement would be different and I you know you'd have to figure out how your board's going to react your urethane wheels are going to react so everything changed how you would ride in the morning was different when the sun was straight up so from your morning practice runs to your midday competitions my gear would be different so even though I might have ridden that road a bunch of times that day by the time I got to being seated to take my first heat down the road the temperature change change could have been like a 20 degree difference in the sun straight up and now the pavement's hotter. So all of those things are variables that always make it something you have to think about. So it sounds like kind of activity where you have to be an active participant at all times. Yes. I mean, I think the people who are an active participants are the ones that come really quickly and go really quickly because they get so injured so quick, so fast because Mm -hmm. they're, they're just, you know, they they're, they get be, they get beyond where they should be very quickly because I think it's a little bit misleading sometimes. I, I think it's probably nothing like this, but it makes me <laughs> think of driving the back roads of Ireland. 
You need to be an active participant at all times or else you're going to scrape your car across a hedge or a wall that's jutting out into the street. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> Always be an active participant. <laughs> I'm sure at some point there had to be an injury or injuries. Yeah, you know, I've had a few injuries. I've, you know, definitely had my share of road rash and scrapes, stitches, things like that. Broken a wrist or two. Uh, my biggest injury was during one of the X Games. I actually shattered my ankle during competition. So that was pretty that was pretty crazy. Um, but it didn't stop me. I came back the next year and competed even better. Um, it just kind of put a fire under my butt to be stronger, I guess. But, you know, with anything, I mean, I think you look at climbers, you know, they hurt themselves. You look at even backpackers, God, just knee and back injuries. You look at mountain bikers, surfers. I, I hurt myself brushing my yeah, teeth. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, I'm pretty clumsy, too. I think when I have to be focused, I'm not clumsy. But when I'm just walking around, I bump into things and trip over stuff. And This, this is a common statement in my house from my girlfriend. Did you just run into a wall? <laughs> <laughs> so do you miss it at all? I think what I miss is the community. You know, when you're traveling all over the world with the same group of people that are from all sorts of different countries and you guys know each other really well and you have a camaraderie and, you know, they're like an extended part of your family or for, you know, that time that you are competing really heavily, they are your family because you're spending so much time with them. I mean, it's hard not to miss that. It, you know, for every time we would, you know, go into a country, we were always, you know, very fortunate that whatever sponsors were there for us, they really took care of us we'd show up at the airport they'd pick us up they'd say hey we've got this media shoot for you they'd have a big party for us they would oh everything we needed they'd get for us what do you want to do tomorrow you've got two days before competition oh you want to go surf okay we'll pick you up at the hotel at this time and we'll we'll have surfboards and we'll take you surfing so it's kind of hard not to get a little spoiled to that lifestyle <laughs> you know I mean you just you realize you know that you were very very fortunate and really really lucky and yeah, it's something I'm very blessed to have an experience like that and very grateful for because it's, it's you know, not a lot of people get to experience that sort of, I don't even know what to say, like being spoiled, I guess, or a professional <laughs> athlete, you know, where it's just, you're always taken care of. Did you ever turn into a diva? No, I never did. I was always super humble. Well, did you not know you were a diva? Is that what it means? Um, I, no, you know, ask any of my friends. I, you know, I'm a really humble person. I don't regularly talk about my experiences, like someone has to know me and has to really ask questions for me to kind of talk about things. I don't go, I don't, I don't really, you know, I, yeah, ask anybody that I'm not, I, I really, I'm super humble. <laughs> I'm like stepping all over my words. Prove right now. it. <laughs> um, I can give you a list of people that would gladly verify. I'm, I'm going to check her references and then I'll let everyone know if she's indeed humble or not. And I won't let her know which references said yes or no. <laughs> Thank you. But I'd be curious. <laughs> so did you ever get involved with it once you left, say, as... I don't. I wouldn't even know, like a coach or a trainer, or what, um, or what they would have. Not as a like coach that? or a trainer, but I did a lot of announcing for ESPN and NBC Gravity Games. So I did come in from the perspective of being, a, you know, a media expert, which was a lot of fun too. And it's, you know, just sort of allowed me to still really enjoy what was happening on a very active scale and really stay very, very involved with the whole international circuit from a non competitive stance. And then you said, well, I've had enough of this exciting street luge. I'm going to get into really long distance, slow, boring walking. 
<laughs> right? <laughs> from from one speed to the other. <laughs> I've seen the world as fast as, as a human can. Now let me see it as slowly as possible. But, you know, to say that, like, I've always been a hiker. So no matter where I was, I would do hikes and things like that. And I would actually backpack where I could when I was traveling. You know, because any country I was in, I wanted to stay there as long as I could. So I'd always find a reason to stay. You know, if it were the wintertime, I'd snowboard. If it were, we were somewhere coastal, I would surf. If, you know, there were a lot of great mountains to climb, I'd go and climb them. So, you know, it's always been a part of my lifestyle. I just think it's now just a bigger part of my lifestyle. Well, I, th- I think it's interesting because it's a nice juxtaposition. It's like, yeah, I don't mind being a backpacker moving slowly. And I don't mind being a person shooting down the road at 70 miles an hour on a small board. I think a lot of people have this misconception. Like, oh, these people are adrenaline junkies and they're just chasing that. And, oh, these people are this. And you could be both. Yeah. You know, and I, I think I've always been very balanced, you know, which made me healthy and made me, you know, not kill myself. Because I think it's the people that aren't balanced. Because everyone I know that's been a really successful athlete, whether they're a motocross rider, whether, you know, they're a BMX rider, you know, whatever it is that they do, they always have that other thing that balances them out. Because you cannot always be going, you know, a thousand miles an hour physically. Like, your body can't handle that. Like, it's just, it's emotionally, it's just too overwhelming. Like, you need those days to just let your body relax for a second, to sleep, I guess, you know, to just turn your body off because it's it's impossible so do you wake up in the middle of the night of dreams of you losing down the street at high speeds but, you know i do have a lot of very random really cool dreams <laughs> <laughs> they're probably a lot better than the waking up realizing oh i wasn't just waiting tables at a restaurant i worked at 20 years ago thank goodness yeah my dreams are actually uh very vivid they're very colorful and they are very adventurous i ha- must say i do have some very fun dreams. (laughs) So would you recommend Street Luge to people? I would. I think you need to make sure that you think about your safety first, though, because it's not like a skate park where you can go to a skate park and try skateboarding in a safe environment. It's something that you need to do in an open environment. You know, there definitely, if you were to Google, you know, how to make a street luge board, you could probably find, you know, a nice set of blueprints that you could make a street luge board out of two by fours and, you know, throw skateboard trucks and, you know, solid sounding like terrible advice. I I know. Kids go home, get some wood and some wheels and just lay on it and just go find but, a street. But that being said, you know, be smart about it. You know, know your limitations and wear protection if you don't, you know, I wouldn't imagine anyone goes out there with a full set of leathers. A couple pair of jeans, maybe elbow pads, knee pads, a jacket, denim jacket. If you don't have a leather jacket, always wear a helmet, gloves. Your knuckles are the closest thing to the ground, so you're going to lose knuckles if you're not careful. Maybe if it becomes popular enough, we'll get street luge parks like they have skate parks. <laughs> and they'll just be mini, mini blocks long (laughs) and they'll be shut down very shortly afterwards because they just can't generate the income necessary to stay open so what do you have planned for the rest of this year any interesting goals any interesting Um, trips coming up a lot of my trips like i was stating earlier really um peak bagging trips where i'm going out to the eastern sierra doing a lot of off-trail third class scrambling and climbing to some major peaks you know 13,000 foot peaks and above like the 13,000 14,000 foot peaks um, just because that's really hard, it's really challenging, and it's incredibly rewarding once you get up there and you see the views and where you are. It's just something that is so worth that challenge to me. It's also a great way to find out if your knees are any good or not. Yeah, that too. <laughs> Soaking an ice cold, you know, lake. <laughs> Sierra Lake is always good. Glacier lakes are nice for that. Aside from that, that's really it. I mean, I, my summer's pretty much booked out through the end of the summer for canyoneering trips and climbing trips and backpacking trips. So when did you start getting into canyoneering? 
Since I know so many Canadian people, I'm surprised they don't know you through that yet. You know, the last few years, I've lightly been doing that. Um, I've been fortunate to actually have most of my experiences out of the United States, which is a lot more fun and a lot less limiting. And, you know, the rules are different and, you know, the, the Canadian guides don't have the limitations that you have here. So they are willing to take you to some really crazy spots. That... Oh, we should bring you out without guides because there are no <laughs> rules then. I can well, assure no, you. But, I, but I mean, up here in the Eaton Canyon area, I mean, they closed up the, they closed off yeah, the upper falls yeah, and things like that yeah, because recently, of injuries yeah. and, and so you know there are non-canyoneering related injuries yeah no, by the exactly non-canyoneering like canyoneers aren't the ones that do the stupid yeah. things it's now the there's a permit system yeah so you know just you just look at things like that so I know you're online you mentioned that there are all kinds of videos mm-hmm. you, are there any videos with you Dan Cortez no <laughs> I'm just gonna keep <laughs> mentioning that I, I keep mentioning that because when I was in high school in the early 90s and MTV Sports came out it was the first time I was ever interested in a sports program because it introduced me to like base jumping and all these all these exciting activities I didn't know existed. Even though I have no idea what Dan Cortez is up to these days. <laughs> I always remember MTV Sports with Dan You Dan should Cortez. Google it. I should. I should Google it like we told people to Google whatever they want to do to go outside. <laughs> so where can people go if they want to see videos of you with Dan Cortez? And um, if they want to... I have a website, theadventureher.com. So rather than adventurer, E-R, it's H-E-R dot com. So put an H before the E at the end. Yes. So adventurehe-r dot com. And then from there, there's links to, you know, my Instagram, my Twitter, my YouTube pages and all sorts of things like that. Are, are you a social media maven? Uh, you know, I think it's a lot of fun. I actually really like the whole social media thing. I, it's 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 neat. <laughs> so, so if people want to follow you, they can see all kinds of cool pictures. They can. And do, do yeah, blog I mean, I post stuff regularly. I'm really, really active in doing things like that. All right. So. Sweet. So she can help you learn how to do cool things if you go to her site. And then maybe you can find old videos of her with Dan Cortez and he had cool hair. Exactly. Yes, you can. (laughs) All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. Never fear the enigma of Pamela's very first backpacking experience was indeed answered. So Pamela went home, thought about it long and hard, and remembered that first experience. And she shared that with us, and we will relay that to you through Erica. Here we go. I had gone to Catalina, and it sparked my memory. I was eight years old and went on my first backpacking trip to the other side of the island. It was an amazing experience. Fishing, swimming in blue water, waking up surrounded by buffalo. The rangers would herd them away and then pick up the buffalo chips. Poop! It sparked a lifelong love of adventure. All right, give it up for Erica. Now she's returning to her dungeon. And now you should head over to GoGetOutside.com. Check out the show notes for this show. There's a lot of stuff there this week. Pamela is not like Carl from last episode. She doesn't hide from the internet. So you'll be able to find her all kinds of places. Go to the website. Like I said, GoGetOutside.com. All kinds of cool pictures there. Her falling out of airplanes, street luge pictures, backpacking pictures, mountaineering pictures. Then links after links after links. Links to her website, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, LinkedIn, a link to her nonprofit, Aspire to Be, which focuses on getting underprivileged youth outdoors, 
a link to Modern Hiker, a great hiking resource where Pamela occasionally writes articles, and a link to the Sierra Club Wilderness Travel Course. She will be teaching this 10-week course next year, and registration opens in January. This is available once a year, so if you're interested in having a very comprehensive outdoor wilderness travel course, go to that link, check it out. And then after that, five of her favorite YouTube links from her backpacking and street losing days, including an interview on oxygen with Candace Bergen and her appearance on To Tell the Truth, which used to be a game show where they bring on people with odd jobs, such as professional street loser. Two people pretend to be that person. One person is that person. And a group of celebrity judges ask them questions and tries to figure out who is the actual, in this case, street loser. So if you go check out that link, you will get to see a number of people, including Brian Cranston, yes, Walter White himself, trying to figure out who of the three people is the real Pamela Zuleyland. And then there's one other link there. I brought him up multiple times during the show, Dan Cortez. So I was curious, looked him up, see what he's up to these days. He's all over Twitter. Go to the show notes, link to Dan Cortez's Twitter page. You can keep up with him. I know you want to know. I know you're sitting there listening to this thinking, thank goodness. Now I know what's up with Dan Cortez, the original Membo. So hey, you want to get in touch with this show? You ready to share your opinion about this show with us? All right, open up your email, type in go at butcherbirdstudios.com and send that email. Or you don't like email, you like phone, that's cool. Call our Google voicemail, 818-925-0106. Brevity, my friend, you have three minutes. Be concise. Have you subscribed to the show? Have you rated the show? Have you reviewed the show? If the answer is no to any of those three things, head over to the iTunes, the Stitcher, the whatever you use to listen to this. Subscribe to the show, rate the show, review the show. I will greatly appreciate it. I will tattoo your name onto my arm as a thanks. And that is a lie. I will not actually do that. You at home can imagine that I've tattooed your name onto my arm in celebration of your subscribing, rating, and reviewing. That's how great you are. You make me want to imagine tattooing your name on my arm. Next week, good buddy of mine, Mike Hastings. He's going to be another one of those with a deep manly voice, kind of like Chris Caloose a few episodes back. Another one whose voice is going to make me sound like a little pansy. Next week, Mike Hastings. We talk about the days when he used to race motorcycles, when he used to race supermoto, mountain biking, and monkey butt. Come back next week. See you then. <laughs>